The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. All right, so Jason Miles is the host of This Is Revolution. He is a Oh, yeah, nice. Do that again. <laughs> All right, and uh, he is the lead of Bitter Lake. Is that right? I got yes. the name of the Yes. yes. And, and uh, you know, one of the coolest guys I know, uh-huh. which is a low bar, but nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome, Jason, to Diet Soap. Uh, I, I'm glad to talk to you today. You, you put, just recently put out an, a video essay mm-hmm. called same as it ever was mm-hmm. about the based off of was, was that title from, um, a talking head song. Yes. The, yes. Yeah. Head song. Once in a lifetime. Yep. Same as, same, same as it ever was. was, same as it ever, as it ever was. was. <laughs> yeah. I always right. like to have a musical title for these things. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a good one. Um, and I have to tell you at the, at the outset, I'm, I'm jealous Mm-hmm. Of your video essay prowess, mm-hmm. it's good stuff. But also, you know, I, I've made lots of video essays, never been invited onto the majority report to talk about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I, so you've got some mm-hmm. marketing moxie there, and uh, I'm I'm envious of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But today you're going to talk about it with me. The the uh, and can I can I say before you even get into your first question, mm-hmm. when on the majority report, Sam Cedar said that i reminded him of adam curtis mm-hmm. and whose name did i bring up when he said that i said i also am inspired by doug lane oh see that was right so who what you should have said honestly was i'm inspired by doug lane who stole from adam curtis before i did <laughs> <laughs> so if um, put something out it definitely inspires me. There's a few things that I don't, I don't know if Doug feels the same way. And I feel like the spirit of competition is totally fine to have mm. in, in this sense. Right. I think it pushes yeah. us to be better. Right? No, we got to be in dialogue with each other about this. Cause we're both making art to express our politics and then similar art, you know, video essays, but um, they're still I'm, different, right? They're similar. Yeah, in a sense well, yeah I mean, yeah, you have a completely different style yeah. from mine, but, and yet I can see, how we're both influenced by Adam Curtis and how we're both approaching the same topics. Like I, like it by coincidence, I feel like the last essay I did and the essay you just put out are in dialogue with each other. Yes. Um, yes. Even though they're not uh, on the surface on the same topics at all. Exactly. But they, they are in dialogue with each other and we get to that, but I wanted to just, you know, bring up, let's summarize. Like what is your video essay about? Um, you, you tell me, I've just seen it, but I, I'll let you describe it. Well, uh, I was, I was kind of, um, excuse me, I don't want to say inspired to do it, but it's been something I've been working on probably for the last six months when -hmm. it comes to conversations that, uh, Pascal to Ray Reed, um, Adolf Reed and I have been having, um, about this kind of second wave of black exploitation that happened in the nineties. And every time I was getting ready to do it, something else would kind of be a derivative of this conversation and that would take precedent over it. So I finally got a chance to do it. I finally got to sit, sit down and do this. And I took a lot of it from something that Pascal had said to me from our first conversation that we, we ever had on camera, which was black power succeeded culturally where it failed politically. Mm -hmm. And that to me just echoed cinema Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went down a research rabbit hole. Um, you know, you and I actually don't just steal clips and have an idea. We actually both read something to base mm-hmm. this on. So uh, I started asking those guys and, and they were a little less help than I thought they'd be 
for for articles of any sort of like Marxist perspective on that era of black exploitation. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't much on that. No, we're talking but, about the 70s, right? For black exploitation. The, the, the 70s? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there were some interesting articles written in the mid-90s and early 2000s about the transformation from the black box office kind or black exploitation to the black box office. Like how do you take Malcolm X who at one point in time was the most dangerous man in America, mm-hmm. you know, in the eyes of the ruling class to a way to sell t-shirts and baseball hats, mm-hmm. you know, in just mm-hmm. what, 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and then kind of just destroy whatever real message he had about any sort of transformative politics. Um, and it's all kind of bootstrapping nationalism in that, in that Malcolm X movie that's like two, two hours and change long. And Spike Lee's whole project, you know, pretty much from jump has been a marketing project. You know, 40 acres and a mule sold merchandise that said mm-hmm. 40 acres and a mule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where I always felt like black power was. And, and there was a moment once where like me and Pascal and, and Cedric Johnson and Teray, I was like, we were sharing these pictures that I would find of all these black Panther t-shirts. And it was like eight different companies <laughs> making black Panther t-shirts. And there's a quote in one of the papers I, I had about Angela Davis and Angela Davis says she walked into a, a, a shopping mall and a young lady was very excited to see her. And the young lady walked up to her and was like, oh, I know you, you're on a different world. And Angela Davis goes, no, it's not me. And the, and the young lady looks at her again and goes, oh, you're just the chick with the Afro. <laughs> <laughs> and Angela Davis was like, I, I guess that's how I'm remembered now. The chick with the Afro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So let's, let me, let's, let's talk about the, the history that you lay out in your video, because I mean, what you're talking about now is sort of the, uh, the kind of final conclusion of your video, which talks about the commodification of the black experience overall. Right. And, but, but, um, I found what you put together there really interesting, especially at the beginning with Oscar Williams, where he was talking about how black actors are told blacks can't make money in films. And how he explains what that's all about, and and it, you, know, you use that clip to go into, I think, uh, into an explanation of the old Hollywood studio system. But Oscar William talks about black actors and how they've been barred from films on basis of, you know, that not financially <laughs> viable, and um, and it's and not just says, black actors, too, right? right? It's exactly. Yeah, he yeah. says it's not just about racism. We should think about how Hollywood is about. Basically, he says, you know. They're trying to hold on to there's like a family that runs Hollywood. Yes. They're trying to hold on to their power and exclude, you know, white screenwriters and women and all kinds of different people, actors who aren't part of their system. Mm-hmm. Um, family. And, yeah. yeah. And I thought about how this works is that, you know, when it comes to filmmaking, the whole in- industry is a rentier industry. It's, a, yes. it's about property. But mm-hmm. owning the property and then having control over the distribution. And that's um, how, the, yeah, that's how it kind of starts. We talk about um, really quickly, I get into deindustrialization with the great migration West. Um, I kind of hit on the riots that were happening at the time and the Kerner commission report. Um, you know, let's get some more images of black people on the screen um, that's something that happens post these riots. That's when you start seeing more black affairs shows on usually public access mm-hmm. television. You also start to see uh, black news anchors. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, what, when was this again? This was a current commission report. And I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was 68, mm-hmm. 67, mm-hmm. 68. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's an interesting moment because it's also, you start to see the birth of things like soul train. Um, not too long after that, the rise of, of figures like Clarence Avant that definitely becomes a, a bit of a spokesperson for uh, black entertainment, if you will. Um, a, a silent kingmaker that a documentary is made about him, like 
30, 40 years uh, later, it's on Netflix called The Black Godfather, if, if anyone's interested. Um, and the studio system, we talk about the means of production. Not only did the studio system at one point in time, you know, of course, produce the films, but they also would like buy out the theaters that showed the movies. So right. in 1948, when that antitrust uh, lawsuit came down and took that monopoly away from, from the uh, motion picture companies, <clears throat> that was kind of hard for them as television got better. Television at first was just the radio on TV. Mm-hmm. So as TVs became cheaper, the quality of television got better. These movie, stu- movie studios started to lose money um, producing these big budget films. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got to the point in the mid sixties where it's either the Warner lot or the Paramount lot. I forget which one owned wizard of Oz. It was even Fox. Can't remember. But they were like, they auctioned off the Ruby slippers. They were auctioning off parts of the back lot of Paramount because there's so much overhead you have when you have a studio because you have these massive lots, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you think, uh, 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 Who's the guy that didn't kill people, but is uh, sent the people to kill the people? Charlie Manson. Charlie. Charles Manson. I can't want to call him Howard Hessman. Charles Manson. Wrong oh one. man, you know that's like he. Charles Manson is the Beatles of serial killers. I couldn't like, think of his name, but yeah, I mean, how do you think he lives in you know an old movie studio lot, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to sell off a bunch of land. And the studio system is losing a lot of money. So the, the business model becomes you need niche films at a, with a super small budget. And what happened to hit at around the same time, and an independent movie is really big at this point. But because, these were, were these new studios or were they made by the same studios that had come before? These, the main exploitation films? Yeah, these little niche films where they being made by all studios. I mean, keep in mind, Easy Rider comes out around the same time, right? You know, these Mm -hmm. are all independent films. So this is the era of the independent filmmaker, right? The major studios, they're hurting, right? Can't do what they did at one point in time. And, and now the independents can, can get distribution because the studios don't have a lock on it. So, and what, because one of the things I was thinking about as I was watching your, your video essay was how, the theory of the auteur, the, yeah. the director is the auteur that came out of France, arose right around before maybe uh, these independent black filmmakers came on the scene. And they thought of themselves as auteurs. They thought of themselves, the, these directors, as being the force behind the movies, the shaping the movies. Um, and I think it seemed to me from the clip I saw that there was even a sense that there was a politics to it. It wasn't just a matter of trying to make a buck off of black anger or something like that, but it was really about the the bringing the reality of life to the screen. You know, the sensibility. I mean, that's what he said anyway. The sensibility. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, it was not real, right? These are you know, unreal films. I think. I'll tell you what I think. Mm-hmm. I think if you if you look at cinema, there's been black cinema since there's been cinema, right? We just don't talk about it. And sadly, in a lot of these documentaries that you watch or things that you read, you really have to kind of get into the weeds of maybe like cinema studies people to learn that there's been black cinema forever. Of course, it was definitely segregated, but these movies existed. Black people won in these movies. They wouldn't have lost it. And they were made by black people for black people to watch. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you talk about cinema and black people, the conversation tends to start with birth of a nation. And then it jumps all the way to Hattie McDaniel. Mm. So it's like there's birth of a nation. And then there's just the constant portrayal of the subservient Negro. And there's, there's, of course there's truth to that. You know, we can't. And these big Hollywood movies you're talking about. These are, these are big Hollywood films, but there's also Mm. this other circuit of of black cinema that has existed. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, not as popular. Right. You know, it just doesn't get talked about like black exploitation. A lot so, of those films are lost too from the so, early 20th century. Yeah. 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 But here's here's what I found interesting. The NAACP was like at post-World War II and 
you know, FDR's administration, like we need to get positive images of black people on screen. So that's when you start to see movies like Carmen, right? Mm -hmm. These post-World War II um, movies of kind of valiant black men. And you start to see the rise, even in the early 60s, late 50s, of people like Sidney Poitier, mm -hmm. you know? So the studios are, are spending money on movies like To Serve With Love, where he literally wins an Oscar. Mm -hmm. Guess who's coming to dinner? But that's one segment of society. Mm -hmm. And Melvin Van Peoples seems to be a bit of a provocateur. And he wants to tell another story. And with a loan from Bill Cosby and some crazy fundraising, he raised about half a million dollars. Remember, it's harder to make a film back in 1971 than it is now. Mm -hmm. Um and he makes Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which goes on to gross 15 million bucks. Now, A, he sold a soundtrack with it first, with an up-and-coming band called Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm -hmm. And he kind of showed the model of success. You have um, this music that needs a way to get out. We don't have MTV. Terrestrial radio is extremely segregated. Um, mm -hmm. and hard to break into because there's a lot of payola that's still <laughs> involved in radio at this moment. And you're able to get the movie out with the soundtrack. And this was a movie where black people went back numerous times to go watch it. So the right. studio was like, we got it. What do we have on deck full of black people in it? We got this Shaft movie with a white guy. Get him out of there. We'll get a black guy in there. And I don't really say that in the video essay, but originally Shaft was a white guy. Wow. And they were like, nope. And gets to get Gordon Parks in there to direct it. Mm -hmm. So they see the writing on the wall, but their movies are a little bit different. The bigger studio movies are more of what we call the super Negro movies. Mm -hmm. um, where these guys are like James Bond characters or private eyes, sometimes even cops. Um, and then you get more of the sweetback model, which is kind of lump and proletariat. Probably you would refer to him as hero in this new era of what we're coming into of, of neoliberalism. Right. So, um, and we're now looking at the, the, the Panther esque characters, the black nationalist esque characters, even the blacks Marxist esque characters, as failures. Hmm. So if you watch any of these movies, there's always kind of almost buffoonish dudes with turtlenecks and dashikis that are like, we don't like what you're doing in the community. And then, the, you know, the drug dealing dudes like, well, you failed the community. I'm going <laughs> to fix it. Cause I'm going to stick it to whitey. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that becomes the narrative. So you actually start to see almost culturally a lot of cats that, you know, have a dashiki, take that off for the bright coat, take the medallion off for the Coke spoon. And you enter into this new era where uh, ghetto chic is, is cool because the narrative is, this is our story. This is the authentic black story. And these other movies, that's their movie. Those are the NAACP movies. Mm -hmm. Dad's movie. You know, I don't want to see Jim Brown and Defiant Ones. I don't want to see... Uh, asexual Sidney Poitier. I want to see, uh, you know, Fred Williamson just give wood to white chicks <laughs> <laughs> for an hour and a half. What kind of wood? Like birch wood or, or uh, oak wood? Or, oh, wait, wait. Anyhow, so, <laughs> so, um, so, <laughs> sorry. Uh, wait. So, all right. Going back just a step, though, because I, I, you know, my point about the new wave, sorry. I want to go back to for because so, everything you said actually <coughs> really feeds into this. But especially because what you just told was the story of how these independent filmmakers got uh, basically integrated into, or the idea that they had got integrated into the Hollywood system, mm -hmm. and the Hollywood system was the big, um, the big monopoly power. Mm -hmm. You know, when it came mm -hmm. to the culture industry, um, and you know, but the, also let me keep in mind, <clears throat> Melvin Van Peoples is kind of scorned by the system. He ends up having to sue a distributor 
And I don't mm. even remember how much money he ended up making from Sweetback. Um, and there's not a lot of black producers and directors. There are some, but a lot of these movies are actually made by, by white people. But again, the audience is a, a quote unquote black American audience that's going to see these in these inner city theaters. They're kind of left. Remember too, there's this migration to the suburbs and the suburban people are watching TV because TV, again, TV shows have gotten better produced. Mm-hmm. So these big urban theaters are filled now with Superfly and Shaft. They make another Shaft movie the next year. They made like three Shaft movies. Bam, bam, bam. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it seems that Hollywood diversified and downsized sort of at the same time. You're talking about <laughs> um, uh, like you're talking about going from major motion pictures aimed at a mass audience to mm-hmm. niche films aimed mm-hmm. at an urban audience in the theaters that still existed in the seventies. Right. And, and sort of, and, and so spending less and, and making less, but making more money per picture probably than you might have. Uh, oh on a big yeah. Budget picture. They're, yeah. They're back in the black, right? They're, they're getting mm-hmm. back in the black. And what really puts them over is the blockbuster in the seventies. If you look at the black exploitation era, some people say it goes to like 79, but that's, and I don't even really want to get into it. That's more of a mixed era of kung fu movies. And there's a kung fu black exploitation that you get post 73, 74. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, that era only lasts about four years before those movies stop making money. Because at about 1973, you start to get a heavy backlash from the NAACP core saying like, these aren't the images that we want to see on the screen. It's just pimps and hoes um, as like anti-heroes. And this isn't what we're about. And so that becomes kind of a fight. And I, and I put a little clip of James Earl Jones having a discussion with Ron O'Neill about it and Ron O'Neill, you know, these are, these, these were classically trained actors that couldn't get a break. And they weren't making that much money on these movies. Mm -hmm. And they thought, I'll play the whore. I'll play the hood. And then if I knock it out the park, I'm a proven commodity. I can get in the door. Mm -hmm. And what they never really, what they failed to see was that there was so much negative light on them. Mm -hmm. The Hollywood was like, well, you, First of all, actors are a dime a dozen. And we don't really want to deal with you because you come with baggage. Hmm. Baggage that we don't want to deal with. Like Ron O'Neill came with a certain level of baggage. He's always going to be super fly. I've watched Red Dawn too many times. Ron O'Neill is the Cuban general guy mm-hmm. in Red Dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Superfly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all I, when I watch Red Dawn, I'm like, well, why is Superfly and Red Dawn? <laughs> well, well, he needed the work. He needed the work. But um, yeah, but but you see what I'm saying though? It's like mm-hmm. that was a, that was a he hadn't had a big role like that in forever. Hmm. Well, I mean, this is what I want to get to. Is like there's this moment of the you know let, let, this of the director's auteur. It comes out of the fact that the studio system is broken up, right? It opens up a space for black movies to be made in America for a black audience mm-hmm. at the because of the economic upset that's going on. So there's an opportunity there. Um, and then um, the power of the monop- of the monopoly power of Hollywood returns. And along with it, you have, uh, let's call it the progressive left trying to make demands on how people are represented on the screens. They're, they're, Institute, they're regulating uh, a monopoly industry, right? They're regulating Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I just, I feel as though uh, they're this, the, the notion of like, I don't know, the old style entrepreneurial capitalism where everybody can compete in an open market and, you know, all that uh, is actually connected to this uh, moment of, of the independent filmmaker, the director as artist, um, and, and, and the intervention about representation 
is sort of an admission of the return of, of the monopoly power uh, in that industry. That's just that, that's something I thought of as I watched your video essay. Um, I mean, perhaps the state would want to uh, regulate the, a diverse set of entrepreneurial studios just as much. But it's a lot easier when you can dictate to a couple of huge studios what their standards are, and then they can dictate that <laughs> yeah. to all the filmmakers and all the theaters and, and all of that. Um, so, I mean, that just occurred to me that we're watching economics play out even as we're watching the, uh, uh, the, the cultural changes that come along with them. Um, so, but the, one of the things that I think is, well, I'm just going to jump jump to something I thought at the end, and and we can go back to some of the other questions. But I thought that the one of the questions that comes up in your video essay is the question of how do black people get represented on the screen? Mm-hmm. How do how do American? What's the responsibility of a progressive filmmaker? What's the responsibility of society to represent uh, black people properly so they can be integrated into society, or that they so they don't riot or uh or uh just so that it's a a proper moral uh depiction and it's a shifting back and forth between like a working class lumpen depiction of the reality of the difficulties of black life and as opposed to the depiction of the middle class uh fully functional citizen um in other films and I just feel like there's an assumption about what popular culture is at work when we de- debate uh, the 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 black character that way. And the, the assumption is that the whole the whole of popular culture is about providing the public with with attitudes. Like it's the popular culture is supposed to do our thinking for us. Um, and it's like what? it's producing art to propaganda. All right, so I, I wrote that down. No, no, no. You but but this this. I was having this kind of similar discussion with, with Sam Cedar where I was, we were talking about Spike Lee and you and I had a conversation about Spike Lee and I can't remember if it was on air, if it was, if it was a personal conversation. I feel like it was a personal conversation. It was, I think, I think it was about this <laughs> before I did this, before I wrote the script. Yeah. You're right. Um, when you think of Spike Lee and it's funny because you and Sam had the same reaction as She's Got to Have It. You guys both like She's Got to Have It, but you guys both enjoy Woody Allen films. Spike mm-hmm. Lee, to me, wasn't trying to be the black Woody Allen. He was just trying to tell his stories, and they kind of come out like Woody Allen stories, right? Spike mm-hmm. Lee is a dude of, from upper middle class family from New York. He's actually part of a gentrifying crew in, in Fort Greene, <laughs> Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that never comes out in his in his movies. It's just movies where the cast is black. And I don't think he was trying to be the voice of black America when he started. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that was something that kind of happened to him. Had he been anything else, he just would have been a director. When we think of Woody Allen, I don't think he tells the definitive Jewish story. No, although people try to push him in that direction. You know, there, there was, there's certainly critics who talk about Woody Allen as a Jewish, specifically Jewish director, but um, that's not how he's brought up. That's not how he's thought of in the popular culture. No, not, these not days, at all. It, like, these he, days, he's only thought of one thing. In well, now, culture. you know, he's a bad <laughs> word now, and I don't, really, I don't really want to dwell on Woody Allen. I'm actually not even the biggest fan. But mm-hmm. my point is that um, in the 70s, these were quote unquote black films that told the real story. And that was always the defense of these movies. Like, no, this is the real story. This is the real black life that we need to get into. And then you have to look at the, to your point about popular culture, look at the shows that then followed good times. But then you also have the Jeffersons and because there really was upward mobility for a certain section of black people. Right. Mm. Um, But there is a lot of shows about, you know, inner city strife and that kind of becomes the, the story and we always have to tell that story and Spike Lee wanted to be antithetical to that story because he does not understand it and if you look at his first two films she's got to have it unlike Sweetback where it had to get the approval of a black audience for its success before he Spike Lee could even get distribution 
he had to get approval from an all-white audience in San Francisco, or a majority white audience in San Francisco, before the distributors even signed on to to distribute She's Gotta Have It. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't make the black rounds, if you will, which they're not as big as they are today as far as like black mm-hmm. media. But um, he's kind of the darling of of white media. Mm-hmm. And the clip that I cut of Spike Lee, and I had to watch a lot of 86, 1986 interviews of Spike Lee, which was a horrible interview when he was a younger man, uh, because he stayed away from race questions, um, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I put the clip in there where he goes, the guy, David Brenner says, well, how'd you get a movie made for $175,000? He goes, well, I didn't have any union labor. (laughs) 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 Like, let's Mm -hmm. like, let's understand who this guy is. You know, he's a, he's a filmmaker and he's a marketer. Right. And his, this is, these are his stories, but the media is like this, this is the new black filmmaker is Spike Lee is Reginald Hudlin. And these are these new black tales. So Spike Lee hits with, she's got to have it. And then later does uh, school days, which is a story about a bunch of middle-class dudes at a black university. And the one instance they have where they're meeting the poorer people, the working class people of the town, that's just that one scene. Those dudes go right back to school and they start talking about divesting from South Africa. They kind of give a fuck about the people in the in the inner city. And I think that's how Spike Lee looks at that shit anyway, right? Mm-hmm. If you, there's two main characters. There's the guy that's like a more nationalist dude. There's a dude that's a little bit more of a, of a typical black bourgeoisie capitalist guy, right? Mm-hmm. That famous scene. I'm from Motown. <laughs> you want to see your ass back to Mother Africa. Like... And then he does, after that, he does maybe his big breakout movie, which is Do the Right Thing, which as a person that's literally from the inner city, I never understood. Didn't well, it, it was filmed on Sesame Street. <laughs> Weren't me and you talking about this too? Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's colorful, but he made a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. And what's sad about this is that he capitulates to the critics makes a conscious decision to not show drug use and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess it's supposed to be Bed-Stuy in the hood. I've been to Bed-Stuy in the hood. It didn't look like that. Um, I won't get into that story. But it was pretty, though. I think do the right thing. I just like big ass Oakland. I mean, these guys, actually, I was loading. I was unloading gear. I'll never forget this, Doug. I was unloading gear to play this venue. In, in, in Bed-Stuy and these black dudes ran over because we had California plates and they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, you really from Cali? I was like, yep. And and they were like, oh, where? What are you doing here? I was like, I'm playing a show around the corner. Today. They actually helped me load my gear and these just black dudes from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They're like, what you think of Bed-Stuy, son? I was like, she looks like a big-ass Oakland to me, so I feel very comfortable. <laughs> and so, you know, we all we all giggled and and they and they helped me. Uh, they helped me into the venue. It was, it was a cool little neighborhood, but it definitely didn't remind me of anything in Spike Lee's movie because one of the characters was a bugging out. His main concern is that there's no black people on the wall, and then there becomes like this more intellectual discussion when you start reading the the reviews and, and papers about it about how Sal didn't live in the neighborhood and. They were gentrifying it and like all this such. I'm like, that's great. But I've never walked into a Chinese restaurant where I'm from and been like, why the fuck ain't Mountain Luther King on the wall? That was the last mm-hmm. thing I thought. Right. I got real problems. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had to dig Buddy out of the couch to be able to come here to eat so I could have a meal today. The last thing I give a shit about is who was on the wall. That seems like a, a very privileged uh, complaint you have there, sir. Yeah, no, I I I completely agree with that uh, assessment. Um, but but let's talk about she, she's got to have it for a minute. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, look, okay, I'm gonna ask this to go a different way. Spike Lee wanted to make do the right thing. No one came to Spike Lee and said, 
Now you have to make movies about race, right? Sure. Did they? I mean, so he, this is what he, he he ended up wanting to do, given the political the climate. You know, it's also the climate of that era, right? We're talking right. about Seth Hawkins. They have the Tawana Brawley didn't lie mm-hmm. at the end of that movie. So it's it's the climate. Yeah. And so he, he feels like he has to, you know, get get involved to make make his movies matter and make, them, <coughs> and make them political and they're for them to matter um and i guess there's a there's a politic to, to she's got to have it too there is it's there's just not a, it's, yeah. yeah but it's not a black politics it's a feminist politics yeah, for the main yeah the main character but there's also the kind of back and forth between spike lee's mars blackman character which he ends up using as a way in with nike right oh right 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 we forget he becomes kind of the spokesperson for hip-hop the hip-hop culture mm-hmm. and you put a nice hip-hop spin on these uh on these basketball shoes there spike lee is it the shoes it's got to be the shoes um and mars blackman and the, and the more uh buppy character the black yuppie character mm-hmm. who, uh, who's more of a black conservative like I thought that was a real funny back and forth. I wanted to actually put that in the video essay, but I was afraid, you know, talking crap about Spike, I would get the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but the plot of that movie, the the, yes. the story of that movie yes. has a feminist angle to it. It's not very much. So. It's about it's it's a critique of the men in her life <laughs> and the empowerment of this woman that we're that we walk away with uh, that movie and and you know, um. So, I don't know. It's pretty conventional, progressive politics on display for the politics. What makes that movie good is just the writing, the filmmaking, you know, the the sexuality of the picture. All that's mm-hmm. fun and 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 enjoyable. And I th- I feel like it's a has some art to it. You know that 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 movie is worth coming back to. Um, and maybe do the right thing is too, uh, for different reasons, but. I guess what I want to ask is how do you think about um, the art of filmmaking and how, and especially in, in relationship to the way in which commerce and politics intrude upon the art and, and direct the art. I mean, this question of like, again, this question of how are black people going to be represented on screen is an odd question. It is an odd question because we don't ask it about too many other groups of people, right? No. And they're really, for me personally, there is no, I've never seen, and maybe you have seen a movie that's like, that's Doug Lane's life right there, right? I get it. That's Doug Lane all day long. Um, I got more from a movie like Moonlight because there's a lot of scenes in that when the kid's little, that reminded me of my relationship with my mom mm-hmm. and a movie like Friday that reminded me more of my relationship with my neighborhood than a lot of the other more Moynihan esque nineties movies where there was always the failure of these fatherless black kids. And that's what's wrong with the inner city. Um, I don't like the fact that black film constantly has to be social commentary. Mm-hmm. Like, can you just have a film with black people in it living, doing shit that anyone else does? Like, that's okay. But this is, and Oscar Williams actually says this, and I don't remember if I put that clip in there from that documentary. The documentary is called Black Hollywood. It's from 1984. And every scene that Oscar Williams is in is clip worthy. Um, But, you know, he kind of makes a comment about there really is no unified black experience that you're going to say, well, this is it. Because there was a point in time where he was trying to make Let's Do It Again, which is a sequel from Uptown Saturday Night. And people told him, don't do it. It wasn't going to sell because black people don't watch comedy. Like, think about that for a second. That's insane. But that's what the people, that's what people that looked like him told him. And that's what the white people that had the money told him. Mm -hmm. That they don't watch comedy. They want to see hood shit because the numbers say they want to see hood shit. Yeah, you know, I, I have a friend who who lives here now, Jim. My friend Jim mm-hmm. uh, was um, in the '80s. He was trying to break into Hollywood, and, and he wrote some scripts. And uh, he was 
you know, shopping his, his script around. And he had Hollywood producers say things like, you know, audiences don't like snow in movies. you can't put maybe i'm stealing that from a a, another movie but they would tell him things like you know oh we can't do we can't do movies in rural we can't do movies about rural towns little towns anymore no one wants to go to everything has to be urban or things like that and it was just a matter of like number crunching from last week yeah i mean think about how if you look at the 70s and let's kind of go back to that era that we're talking about there was even the more gritty films were done in the city. The Godfather is in the city. It's in New York. It's dirty. It gets under your nails. Mean streets. It's going to get under your nails. Taxi driver. These movies get under your nails. And then you think about the black exploitation. That's all urban. It's dirty. By the time we get to the mid to late 70s, everything's happening in the 80s. Everything's happening in the suburbs. Poltergeist is a blockbuster. Suburbs. Or Outer Space. Alien. Mm-hmm. Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Because the model changes from small niche. We're going to get a bigger return on our investment. But now, let's get a bigger investment and a massive return. So we need more wide-ranging films that are... Um, what do you call it when you sit in the room and they ask you questions about brands? Focus. Group. Focus grouped. <laughs> um, and we're going to saturate every market, you know, mm-hmm. with these movies and close encounters comes out. Mm-hmm. Jaws comes out. These are all mass marketed, super saturated. You know, again, star Wars comes out. Yeah, but like Indiana those Jones. movies, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, um, uh, uh, Close Encounters, they're not you, – you don't go to see Close Encounters. You don't think you're going to go see Close Encounters because you say to yourself, I want to see a movie about people like me in the suburbs. <laughs> and yeah, you want escapism. You want to see a movie about aliens, right? Yeah, something bigger than you. Yeah, maybe it's escapism. Yes, yeah, some it's, of the black exploitation. When you think about it, Doug, mm. nobody's a super pimp, right? Of course, <laughs> there's not. no super pimps, right? Mm. There's no super hookers that put razor blades in their hair and do well, backflips. Uh, well, they, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. There, there's there's a bit of escapism in in all this stuff. But now we're going to really mass market it to, to a wider audience. And even when you see the, the blow up of MTV, what's the first thing MTV says? We want to reach a wide audience. And anything that's not rock and roll is niche music. So we don't really want to have black music because that's going to cut off our audience in middle America. How did rock and roll this is another conversation we have to talk about sometime but <laughs> how did rock and roll stop being black music that's insane but um but uh, it did yeah, yeah well elvis right but stop calling it race music right i mean we talk about marketing all the time right once i call it something grunge what's the difference between grunge and hardcore punk nothing <laughs> <laughs> right 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 it's yeah. just a label and now i can sell shirts with it mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this idea that what we are, what we go to movies for, what we're looking for, and it's in the Hollywood people's heads, it's in filmmakers' heads to some degree, is a reflection of ourselves. Mm. That what we want is to like to find characters on the screen that will either be moral examples for us, or that we can find relatable. Relatable is a big word these Ooh. days. You know, you got to create relatable content. Um, Weird. Or that we can, you know, that we that will help us feel uh, like our lives make sense, and that we can be, and that we are something. Um, you know, this is, I think it's got to be thrown out the window. Like I think, uh, like I I feel as though really good films and books and music help you to think about and move move beyond where you're at to open up. They can possibilities. Yeah. Sometimes it's just junk food. I like junk food. Yeah. Okay. 
I don't go running every day because I eat well. I go running every day because I eat like crap. Mm -hmm. And I like junk food. As a young person, when I would stay with my father, my parents were separated. He would go, we get to go to the movie place and you can rent one movie. This was before Blockbuster, right? And every time I grab a movie, my dad would be like, no, that looks like it sucks. And then, <laughs> so I just have to watch whatever my dad wanted to see. Yeah, Coke yeah. And Highlander, Platoon. Well, this is the other thing. It's like the values I'm expressing, right? Oh, art should open you up. Art should should challenge you. Art should make you think beyond who sure. you are. All of that. Those are also like, there's, a, I don't remember who wrote about this, but they say, you know, these are like class based values. I just read someone said something about that the other day. I think we actually are mutual friends. Like me and you are mutual friends with this guy on Facebook. I actually had a critique about that. Uh, Sudeep. Yeah. Sudeep yeah. actually posted something about that. Yeah, uh, like, I, I agree. Know. I I agree. But Look. why is it that middle class and upper class people mm -hmm. want art that challenges them, that opens up possibilities, that makes them think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and and supposedly the masses want junk food. Why I mean, do, do the middle and upper classes really just want art to make you think? Those are the values they're supposed to. I mean, there's guilty pleasures, right? But they're guilty. But, I mean, but again, the 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 massive blockbusters. Of like, well, she's got to have it. Is not is about is is a film that's meant to make you challenge mm -hmm. certain values like normative mm -hmm. values and mm -hmm. make you think not not too not too deeply but nonetheless it's it's that's what makes it a kind of a progressive feminist film is it, it it's an affront to or it's time right? sexual more mores of the time well there, there's different look as the studios were making gobs of money in the 70s and early 80s from a lot of these blockbuster franchise franchises right mm -hmm. jaws star wars aliens uh uh, uh what, else? what are we leaving out indiana jones as right. they're making gobs of money from these now they can have tax write-offs in these art films and that mm -hmm. is kind of what you see with stuff like spike lee you know you can take a chance on a guy like that because he's gonna make an art film kiss of the spider woman think about some of the art films that come out of the 80s as well daughters of the dust um mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of foundation money that goes into to this era of filmmaking that you're talking about because so many cats that had money went to art school. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have these art school cats that want to make art school films. That's fine. You know, they made them. Is John Waters art or is John Waters junk food? Yeah, you see both. Yeah. <laughs> you said yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but does John Waters tell you the definitive story of uh of the gay man? Weirdly, yes. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh uh no, I uh, yeah, so but that's the thing about an art film is that it doesn't all the other thing is it doesn't try to be definitive necessarily because yeah. it's not it's not there to say, okay, this is what is, this is how we should think. This is the, the, the film with the right ideas. It, it's more about, uh, it's more open-ended. It's more of an expression. I, I think this is how, you know, this is what I get out of, uh, but, but my a favorite film is just that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a genre of film. Like what would you call Boots Riley's, uh, sorry to bother you? I would call that, uh, a cult film. Okay. Um, in the style of like Repo Man. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. If, I wonder what Boots would say. Um, like, I mean, really like, like I, I, I watched that movie the way I would watch kind of a low budget, thought provoking, wild, you know, somewhat flippant and ironical movie like, like Repo Man. Mm -hmm. It's heavily stylized and absurd you know surreal yeah yeah almost yeah. absurd yeah that's um, absurd. but it's gonna hit you over the top of the head with the message right right although repo man what was the fucking message in that movie uh but you know i'm not sure what the message in that movie was sorry to bother you had more of a con concrete message yeah but but um but that wasn't what i like best about it
I mean, I did like that message. I thought it, of course, you know, but I, I just loved the sensibility of that movie and the, and the absurdity of that movie. And the, um, it seemed like a throwback to me to a type of movie that in the eighties, like I would have Kentucky fried movie. I mean, that's yeah. what he would be comparing it to when he was talking about it. Cause remember I was living in the studio when he was shooting that. All oh, really? Over. Yeah. Wow. And he would talk about Kentucky fried movie. Yeah, you know, it was it was crazy. There would be like weird scenes that didn't. <laughs> you walk to the back lot, and there's like people dancing. The thing about that movie is it is hilarious. That's the thing about sorry yeah. to bother you is how funny it is. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and the same thing with Repo Man is also not quite as, but still really funny. Um. So, and as I think, also I think uh, art films can be funny. Like I think. Important movies can be funny. You can have important comedies that are thought provoking and open things up and make you think and all that kind of stuff. But they're they're hilarious. Well, I'm not sure if uh, if that makes sense or not. I just that's my bias. It's my instinct. I like comedy so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it that. You know, like yeah, you can do that. Um, I, I mean, Boots is a different cat, right? He has a, a an activist pedigree, right? It's in him. It's something he's done since he was a very young man. Before right. he was doing music, he was doing. But his movie doesn't even for much as so much of it is a message. It still doesn't come off like an activist movie. You know, you it does. No, it doesn't come off. Look, well, not in the bad way. Anyway, you know, like, you know, a lot of activist movies like they're they're heavy handed without being self-consciously absurd. They're. Like I think there's an artistry to that movie that mm -hmm. makes it transcend its particular message in that moment. You know, like it, um, it's more than just a commentary on the sort of ham-fisted commentary on class. It's also the feeling of how crazy this disintegrating world is, um, and what it's like to work in a call center is there. I mean. What it's like to live and work in a call center, I've done it lots of times, yeah. is a little bit like through the looking glass, man. It's uh, <laughs> something very odd about it. I, um, I was I was watching your video essay early this morning. Mm -hmm. I'm talking three o'clock this morning. Hey, why don't we why don't we put this right here as the break, and we'll talk about my video essay now for a little while and we can do that for the patrons so okay. this will be at 51 minutes and 45 seconds well i'll say goodbye to you jason and then i'll say hello to you again as we start the patron but we're not gonna i'm not gonna give you a new stream or anything this is it 